welcome to Legal Light, where we discuss everything e-discovery. Legal Light is brought to you by Outlaw e-discovery, the UK's leading independent e-discovery service provider, and your host, Matt Altes, CEO and founder of Outlaw e-discovery. I'm joined today by Keith Cottedon, cybersecurity expert at 3B Data Security. So Keith, welcome. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. So you started your career as a military policeman working in counterintelligence. Is that what first sparked your interest in cybersecurity and cybercrime? Yes, I learned my trade in the uh, Royal Air Force Police as a counterintelligence investigator, specialising in computer security when uh, the military just didn't know what computer security was. Uh, I wasn't an expert at that point, but I learned very quickly. I used to write my police reports in WordPerfect DOS and do a few simple entries into a flat file database. I was deemed an expert uh, in computer security. Uh, obviously after that, I was trained, uh, met the right people, and uh, it looked after not just me, but also many of my colleagues. So what, was, what were the sort of issues that we were having back then? Viruses were the, uh, the big thing, the viruses of the uh, very early days, because there, actually there, there is more to viruses than the coronavirus. They've been around on computer systems a long time. So we were primarily investigating incidents, of virus attacks and uh, minor hacking incidents. But you've got to bear in mind, this was in the days of three and a half inch floppy disks. But they still, with 1.44 megabytes, could hold a filing cabinet full of uh, protectively marked information. So it was important stuff and I could still, to this day, hide things on a three and a half inch floppy disk that none of my uh, uh, team would ever be able to find. And I know that you appeared on the BBC's Panorama journalist uh, programme um, exposing the vulnerability in, uh, in, in Wi-Fi networks. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that was uh, 10 years ago now. Uh, worked with uh, Joe Wiley, interestingly, uh, viewing figures of 3 million. You know, so it was a big turnout. Uh, I did most of the show. It was all around digital piracy. At the time, in 2010, I was doing a lot of work for a lot of organisations around digital piracy. And the BBC picked up on it and thought it would be a good thing to uh, do an expose on file sharing, um, the bit torrents and the like. Uh, so I went, did a programme, and uh, hacked into uh, a, somebody's house and also some student accommodation in Manchester to demonstrate how easily it was to bypass the uh, routers of the day. And I know that you worked 15 years with a good friend of mine, Joel, um, fellow aviator um, up at uh, Cypher, and that was your entry into the discovery well, which of course is where we met. Um, tell us a bit about what you were doing at Cypher. Yeah, I spent 15 years uh, working with Joel at Cypher uh, as a technical director. Uh, with a range of services. My team uh, produced defence and prosecution uh, work for criminal cases. We did civil litigation and we did uh, corporate investigations. From a civil litigation perspective, uh, I helped build the organisation up from the early days of using iPro through to having uh, a full on-prem relativity set up and working on some really big litigation cases. And now you've gone full on back into cybersecurity, working with uh, 3B uh, data security services. What are the main um, activities of 3B? 
okay yet. So the opportunity came up to move back into cybersecurity and uh, I grasped it with both hands. Another good opportunity to assist build a small business into something much bigger. And uh, the bulk of the work that Freebie currently do is for the payment card industry, uh, the Security Standards Council, uh, where we do both investigative work and also audit and compliance work. Uh, so, you know, large percentage. I'm head of digital forensics and incident response. So my team are either investigating uh, payment card industry forensic investigations for merchants that have had uh, card data breaches or they're out on site dealing with uh, incidents, uh, including uh, the l ransomware attacks, which I know we're heading towards We're going to talk about, yeah. yeah. So indeed, we are, we are here to, to talk about the ransomware attack on one of the largest, if not the largest, e-discovery and legal services company in the world. Um, tell us, what exactly is ransomware? Ransomware is a form of malware which basically encrypts data so the user cannot access it. Uh, the only way uh, around that is to either try to decrypt it uh, or pay the ransom, uh, which is an option uh, regardless, uh, or wait for uh, a release to be made where it's been decrypted or to restore from backups. Now, I hear that this particular strain of ransomware, Ryuk, is a particularly nasty strain. What makes this one different? Okay, so uh, with regards to Ryuk, it's uh, been released by a Russian e-crime uh, syndicate. Uh, and it's particularly nasty because there's not a lot you can do with it fundamentally. A lot of the early ransomwares uh, have now been decrypted. Uh, they can be uh, reverse engineered and, and data can, re can be recovered. But this one particularly uh, is a real challenge because fundamentally it is implemented by uh, a phishing attack by a Trojan, another piece of malware, which can allow the instigator to spend possibly months within the network looking at what will be the most interesting as, uh, aspects of the data to encrypt the most valuable data before actually applying the encryption. So they could have been in that system for months? It's possible that they could have been there for many months without being detected. Uh, it's very stealth in the way it implements itself and it's very hard to detect uh, by normal mechanisms. And I've read online, it may or may not be true, but the way that they got into this system may have been by something called social engineering. Now that sounds pretty sinister. What exactly is social engineering? Uh, it's basically somebody who is attempting to gain unauthorized access to a system, trying to circumnavigate the technical controls that are in place or to get through the user, yeah, in, in order to get details from them that would enable them to access that data. Uh, it can simply be a phone call to somebody uh, with the uh, hacker trying to pass himself off as someone else and just get a password. Uh, but in this particular case, it's via a phishing email with somebody passing themselves off 
off probably as a senior uh, director of the organisation in order for credentials to be established so that they can then target an individual with a particular email. Uh, with this particular piece of ransomware, if the users had been in there for several months, then they could have had plenty of time to find out what would have been relevant within email communication to particularly target the user to click on the link that would have then allowed the Trojan into the system, stealth-like, so that the hackers could then spend time looking at what point to pounce and what was the relevant data that they needed to encrypt. So how would this company first know that there was a problem? That's quite simple. When the message appeared on the screen that said that you had had a ransomware attack and to get your data back, you would have to pay so many bitcoins to this address. Uh, the, the, in this particular case, uh, the examples we've dealt with, uh, the message also kindly allowed you to uh, do a test drop of some data to, to show they're genuine and that they will decrypt it. So you've got to be very careful that you pick the right bits of data to get decrypted for free because there's no, there's no other solution uh, to decrypting that particular ransomware at this time. So talk us through the steps that a company would have to take normally, particularly a company of this size, because presumably they wouldn't want to go directly and pay a ransom. So what steps would they be taking right from that very first message? to kind of where we are now. Okay, so the first reaction uh, would be panic. There's, there's absolutely no doubt uh, because any organization, not just a technology organization, uh, would be fearful that they'd potentially lost their data. Uh, and with a company that has client data, more importantly, the client data. Uh, the second reaction for a technology company would probably be embarrassment yeah, that it's happened to them. Uh, at this stage, uh, there will be a reporting mechanism, but they're just trying to deal with uh, the ongoing crisis. Hopefully, any organisation would have an instant response plan, which would or should include uh, dealing with a ransomware attack, because this case demonstrates that nobody uh, is immune from this type of attack. Uh, and technology organizations would certainly have lots of people that would be able to deal with it but I would recommend you get some outside assistance and look at it from a different perspective you'd certainly need a forensic investigation company involved in it uh, because once you'd reached the decision point of how deep had this gone what data has actually been lost what can we recover or do we pay the uh, uh, the ransomware demand the next thing is what have we actually lost? How did the individual get in? Now, this isn't all about just pinning this on a user. Yeah, this is actually what data have we lost? Who do we have to report it to? Not only is it our clients that we have to inform, but there's also regulators, of course, that need to be notified and potentially some very large fines coming in an organization's way. So a proper forensic investigation that can say, do you know what, this has happened, but we had backups, we've restored from those backups, and we can demonstrate that actually we lost no data. This breach was purely uh, an extortion demand from a hacker. And here is our evidence that no data was lost. 
there still could be fines, but ultimately uh, a, a proper forensic investigation needs to be carried out. The next point of action is, do we have proper backups? If a hacker or hacking syndicate have been in a network for a large period of time, they would have picked out the particular areas of interest. Now, for a technology company involved in e-discovery, that's going to be database significant, SQL database. Now, if those databases are in any way locked, they need to know straight away whether the backups were there and whether they were recoverable. So this isn't about the client data that's migrated its way onto an SQL database and might be secured somewhere in an evidence store or in a safe. Yeah, that's standard operating procedure. This is what's been processed, often over many days or many weeks, and solicitors and legal review teams are working on that at that time, possibly to imminent court deadlines. Now, if that data's encrypted and can't be unlocked, Yes, you can return to the evidence store. Yes, you can run the processes again. But from my experience, not in the time that you may have available. So you need some form of backup that can be recovered quickly. Now, that isn't always about what have you got stored locally, because if you've got a backup stored locally and the uh, hacking syndicate have had time to explore your environment comprehensively, God forbid the backups are encrypted as well. This needs to be off-site storage with no link to the network. And to satisfy the uh, requirements of the clients, demanding requirements of the client, that really needs to be data replication. So the server that's been compromised can be switched off, which switches on the replication server and business is resumed as normal. Without backups, there's very little you can do with this strain uh, of ransomware attack. You could throw teams and teams of trained investigators and reverse engineer uh, malware specialists. But ultimately, yeah, if that's encrypted and the key's not available, you're not getting into it. And so what happens if a ransom isn't paid? What happens to the data then? Okay, if the ransom doesn't get paid, and I'll say again, we always have to present that paying the ransom is unfortunately an option. It just helps fund the syndicate, the e-crime uh, syndicate, probably do organised crime for stop. So this isn't just about computer hacking. This is state-funded terrorism. This is every heinous crime you can imagine that's being funded. But if an organization is up against a court deadline to get their uh, e-discovery solution back online, I'm afraid that paying the ransom is an option. Now, this particular piece of ransomware is targeted. There is absolutely no doubt that the uh, Russian uh, crime syndicate responsible for this have targeted this technology company because of its size and global presence. So they would have known, having time to look, what areas of the data would be relevant. So the backup, the pay the ransom, or start from scratch. So with a company like this, the input in the data is, is pretty fluent and pretty permanent. Um, it's happening all the time. What could a company like this have done 
to protect its systems from such an attack. The first one is some form of off-site backup, but it really needs to be replication, data replication, so that when a particular site goes down, you've got to remember this isn't just about ransomware and malware attacks. This is also about disaster recovery per se. Uh, you know, we all run the risks of uh, the weather's been dreadful for the last few weeks. Uh, the uh, We live on flight paths for airports. Disasters can happen, they're out there. Uh, fires, floods, etc. So it's not all about ransomware attacks. So having a proper off-site storage facility that can be switched on to where you are at the point of the disaster or the ransomware attack is absolutely crucial and your client should be expecting that. And to all the clients out there looking at e-discovery solution providers, you need to ask the question of what backups do you have in place? Of course, that brings us to cloud-based storage solutions. This is still an alien concept for us that have been in the industry for as long as I have. It, it, it's a difficult challenge because all we think when we think cloud-based is insecure. We just think internet connectivity and therefore not reliable, but not today. As long as it's a reliable provider that you've done due diligence on there, and there are plenty of them out there, including Azure and AWS who provide secure environments where they are responsible for the security. There are elements of the security that you will have to be responsible for. For example, the data you're putting onto your platform, has it been scanned for malware yeah, prior to it going on the platform? A lot of these malware attacks come in emails, phishing emails with links or attachments that are malicious. Yeah? If you, as a provider, then put these emails into the system, you're just complicating the issue and bringing it on yourself. Yeah? So cloud-based storage and cloud-based solutions are definitely the way forward. And us that have been around a long time that still potentially fight the value of them need to reevaluate. And perhaps even things like the APPO guidelines need to be modified slightly because free discovery, read forensics, read information governance, read data protection. And it's all about securing client data. And the cloud is an option. This has happened to a technology company what could a normal company do? What would a normal company do if this sort of attack happened to them? Okay, yeah. So, uh, as I've already said, technology company uh, or not, this attack can occur. So, for organizations that don't have the infrastructure of, a, of an organization to actually understand what this is all about, it's a very difficult challenge. But ultimately, there's only really two things uh, that can be put in place to, to try and prevent this. The first one and the most important one is security awareness. Staff need to be trained uh, in order to identify phishing emails and just the key bit to that is, if you're not certain that that email is genuine, do not click on any links, do not open any attachments and use the voice to ask who you think it's come from, do you want me to do what this email is suggesting? That is the most important thing. The, the user is the biggest security issue to any organization. The second one is technical controls, bringing in some form of 
of technical control that prevents phishing emails or attachments coming into an organization. And you know, ultimately for a smaller organization, having some form of audit or, or check, even at the basic level, just the, the, the government recommended cyber essentials is a start point. But that's really it, man. And what about um, uh, a lot of companies now moving to 365? Does this stop these phishing emails? Does this stop the risk? Okay. Office 365, no. It does not stop the uh, uh, emails. It doesn't stop the risk. If anything, it enhances the risk slightly. So again, cloud-based solution. If Office 365 is, has the right technical controls and is configured by an appropriate admin so that the, the, the controls are in place, then yes, it, it's a safe and secure uh, email client. But if it's not, yeah, it can leave you just as vulnerable uh, as if you had an on-prem solution like Exchange. So Office 365 needs to be configured correctly, Logs, uh, logging needs to be switched on, and it may actually be that you have to buy additional bolt-on services to the, the general subscription package in order to secure, uh, secure yourself more effectively. Uh, for example, uh, Microsoft don't actually back up your emails unless you pay a bolt-on. It's unlikely they'll ever be deleted unless the user deletes them, but it's not a service you pay for. So Office 365 is a viable solution. I'm certainly not going to say that, but it needs to be configured correctly. And far too many organizations have random uh, global admin accounts that for, for users that have no idea about security. So my recommendation there would be bring someone in who does know what they're doing, have a proper audit and bring proper technical controls in. Yeah, you don't want to find out that you've got a problem after the problems hit you. Ultimately, Office 365 or not, it's email. It can contain the same links unless you have a solution that detects phishing emails and doesn't send them through. These all cost money, but they're options. You've got to weigh up. Yeah, save money in the long term. Yeah. We've talked a lot about ransomware. I know that there are lots of other threats out there. Are there any as bad as ransomware? Ransomware's the, the biggie. There's a lot of it around and it causes the most damage. Uh, most of the others can be recovered from uh, and it doesn't help you with the regulatory fine that might be coming your way. If it's a financial organisation, there's a regulator, of course, we're all under the same data protection requirements of reporting breaches to that effect. But uh, fundamentally, you're looking at the uh, other types of attack being uh, attacks similar to uh, denial of service where uh, a website's taken down, uh, a distributed denial of service attack where lots of computer systems target large corporations or, or, or just general websites in order to take them down for a period of time, but they can all be recovered from. It might be embarrassing uh, but ultimately they can be recovered. There's a man in the middle attack, which, which is quite uh, relevant still to this day, where a hacker sits in between a communication chain. So it might be, uh, say, an e-commerce website 
where a man in the middle intercepts communications from a user to that particular e-commerce site, steals the credentials and therefore has, has access to it. Uh, crypto jacking is quite a modern uh, cyber attack uh, all around cryptocurrencies like bitcoins and uh, the uh, ubiquitous uh, blockchain where uh, hackers are looking at resources in order to harvest uh, bitcoins uh, for malicious activity. Uh, and, but most of the others are sort of well, uh, and then there's just a virus that might take, you know, take a system down, but they can be recovered from a backup or just from scratch. So it's been a, a pretty serious discussion so far, and I know that you'll join me in wishing this company all the best um, in order to restore service as normal. Um, do you mind if we lighten the mood a little bit? So we get to this part of the show where um, I ask you to share with our wider audience something that otherwise they may not know about you. So I ask, did you know the Keith Cottenden used to be twice the man that he is today. Anybody that's known me for five years or more will remember me as a much larger uh, personality character. Uh, but five years ago, I decided it was time to sort the uh, uh, corporate uh, figure out and return to my former military self. Uh, so my colleagues today, unless they've done open source intelligence gathering on me, will have no idea uh, that I used to be six and a half stone heavier than I I am today. Um, that panorama program you referred to uh, earlier, Matt, uh, was an example of me at my uh, peak. And uh, 3 million viewers, that's the second time I've said that, watched that program. Uh, and out of that, only received five tweets of criticism yeah, from all the feedback that the uh, both uh, the social media profiles and the BBC website received. Four of them were arguments around copyright and shifting your own personal CDs onto an iPod and whether that was legal or not. And then there was one that said, BBC employ Bouncer to give security advice. advice. Yeah, that will always stick with me. I still kept that tweet. It made me giggle. Today they'd call that fat shaming. They would, yeah, and maybe I can return. But you've managed to keep it off. How have you done that? Yeah. Most times it goes straight back on. I came from an ex-military background and I did then, used to be very fit, uh, played a lot of sport. The corporate lifestyle just grabbed me, took a hold. Uh, too much corporate entertainment, too much corporate dining it, it, in clubs like yourself, Matt. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I needed to return to, to the good practices. Uh, you know, uh, I, I could give some, some good advice that will offend certain industries. In my world now, bread is the root of all evil. Yeah, uh, th that's a key one. Uh, I do seriously think about what I eat now. I haven't gone up the, uh, the, the vegetarian route, but I do enjoy uh, food without meat. And if I could give up drinking, which is a passion of mine, then I'd do even better. But you've got to have some pleasures in life. Well, should we go for a beer and sandwich? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, man. Cheers. Legal Light was brought to you by Altlaw eDiscovery, the UK's leading independent eDiscovery service provider. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to like, comment and share, and please leave us a review. For more information on our products and services, visit www.altlaw.co.uk. That's www.altlaw.co.uk.